Good afternoon. It's Friday the 11th of December 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and well, we're going to start off with Brexit because that's uh, the main story of the day, apparently, uh, as fake as it is. It's one of the first days of the, in the last nine months where there's something other than the pandemic. Uh, on the headlines on the newsstands. Nothing else, just Brexit today. Yes. Uh, so uh, Ursula uh, von der Leyen, who's of course the uh, president, one of the presidents of the European Union, she's the president of the European Commission, um, has uh, given a briefing to the various European Council members, uh, Macron and uh, Merkel, of course, being the key players there, uh, that perhaps there won't be a deal done after all. Now, uh, this is a little bit longer video clip than we would normally play, it's a couple of minutes, but let's just uh, listen uh, to what she had to say because there's a couple of important points we want to pick out of this. Finally, I briefed the leaders on the negotiations with the United Kingdom. Positions remain apart on fundamental issues. On the level playing field, we have repeatedly made clear to our UK partners that the principle of fair competition is a precondition to privileged access to the EU market. It is the largest single market in the world, and it is only fair that competitors to our own enterprises face the same conditions on our own market. But this is not to say that we would require the UK to follow us every time we decide to raise our level of ambition, for example, in the environmental field, they would remain free, sovereign, if you wish, to decide what they want to do. We would simply adapt the conditions for access to our market accordingly the decision of the United Kingdom, and this would apply vice versa. On fisheries, here also, we continue to have a gap. We have not yet found the solutions to bridge our differences. We understand that the UK aspires to control its waters. The UK must, on the other hand, understand the legitimate expectations of EU fishing fleets built on decades and sometimes centuries of access. On these and other points, our negotiators are working. We will decide on Sunday whether we have the conditions for a, an agreement or not. In the meantime, the Commission has proposed four targeted contingency measures today. They provide a short-term fix to ensure basic connectivity in air and road transport for six months. And we are also proposing to the UK to ensure reciprocal access to each other's waters for next year. One way or the other, in less than three weeks, it will be new beginnings for old friends. Thank you. So new beginnings for old friends, Patrick, is the message. Uh, they're going to put it, they're going to effectively extend the transition period for six months is what you just said there, uh, with these four steps to make sure that there's uh, a transition. Right. Uh, and she said that was going to go for six months. That's air, road and transport. Uh, but the first question, is the EU the largest market in the world? Ah, that's the first statement that she uh, opened with. And actually, technically, I don't think that's true. It's only the largest single market when Britain's in, in it. it. So now that Britain's out, they actually I don't think they can rightfully boast that uh, in terms of uh, either total GDP or you know total market cap, I think they might even be falling into sort of second or third place uh, because it is, you know, between China, the United States, uh, and, and North America zone. I don't know what the, what the situation is with the North American free trade uh, agreement at the moment. It's contentious uh, in certain areas with this president, but yeah, so that's an interesting gambit. Right, but uh, she suggested that maybe the, the, the Britain might want to go in its own way in certain areas where the EU's ambition was bigger than Britain's, and she suggested environmentally the EU's ambitions are bigger than Britain's. And this is, of course, complete nonsense because Britain is absolutely driving uh, the new Green Deal at the moment. We are the first uh, to be pushing, I mean, we're building back better. This is the, 
the slogan for the new Green Deal. So this is a bit of punch and Judy there with, there, with there the is. EU and Britain. There yeah. is, absolutely. So, so I'm not uh, taking reading anything very much into this statement. She said that uh, decisions will be made by Sunday. I think there's plenty of time for the negotiations continue in the meantime. There's plenty of time for a deal of a kind to be done. Uh, but just before we uh, move on from this, let's just uh, listen to what Boris said yesterday because, of course, he was also not being quite... Uh, correct or accurate or telling the truth, in other words, in what he said. So have a listen to this. I do think that uh, we need to be very, very clear. There's now a strong possibility, strong possibility, that uh, we will have a uh, solution that's much more like an Australian relationship with the EU than a Canadian relationship with the EU. That doesn't mean it's a, a bad thing. There are plenty of ways, uh, as I've said, that we can turn that to the advantage of, of both sides in the, in the conversation. There are plenty of opportunities for the UK. But yes, now is the time for the public and for businesses uh, to get ready for January the 1st. Because, believe me, there's going to be change either way. There'll be change whether it's a Canada-style deal or an Australia-style deal. But Okay, so first of all, what deal does Australia have with the European Union? And of course, the answer is, well, none at all. There's no free, free trade deal, uh, you know, in the sense of, of uh, a Norway style deal or a Canada style deal. Basically, uh, Australia's relationship with the EU is based on WTO rules. So when he's talking about an Australian, uh, uh, what is he said, an Australian re uh, relationship, uh, that means WTO, okay? In fact, uh, yes, effectively it does. Uh, so, so, the, so the question is, what's this? What is actually going on here? And uh, well, we need to go back uh, to 2016. Now, I published this on Facebook in 2016. The best of both worlds. What will be? What will we be, be voting for? Sorry. So this was published in February of that year, uh, six months before the uh, or four months before the referendum, um, and this was about uh, David Cameron's uh, tour around the European Union. Uh, 18 months he'd been running around the European Union trying to get a better arrangement as he was presenting it. He was trying to, uh, at least domestically, he was expressing this as trying to uh, sort of stave off the possibility of momentum building for us leaving the EU. So he, he was uh, claiming that he was arguing with the EU leaders uh, that they needed to uh, reform uh, and be more palatable to the British audience. But that wasn't really what it was about, was it? Because uh, this was what was uh, the, one of the key parts of that document. And remember, this was a legally binding document at the end. Uh, so it said that concluding all the trade deals already underway would ultimately be worth in total more than 20 billion a year to UK GDP. This includes the UK's top trade priority, an agreement between the EU and the, EU and the US, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which alone could add 10 billion to UK GDP. Now, this is key um, because this is what he was saying. The TTIP was the UK's top trade priority. Mm -hmm. Now, TTIP at that time, uh, Patrick, if you remember, was under really heavy pressure. Uh, the EU was under really heavy pressure because there were lots of people making the point that if you wanted to see the text of the TTIP at the time, you had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. There was absolute secrecy and security over the uh, text of that. And of course, there were big concerns amongst many campaigners the TTIP was a threat to national sovereignty, that it was a threat to the ability for, for countries to set their own rules, whether they be environmental or, uh, or, or food standards or all this kind of stuff. And courts as well, that uh, corporate, corporate legal action superseded uh, the, the, the laws of any particular nation state. So I mean, that was huge and unprecedented historically. Yes. So, so my position at the time was that, that uh, TTIP was key to what Britain was doing. Uh, they didn't want to let it go and that they were not, in fact, going to let go a policy that had been developed over the course of 40 years. They were working up to that. They weren't going to just drop it. So TTIP was defeated in the EU and we haven't really heard anything more about it since. Uh, but then Brexit came along. Well, Cameron came with the with the best of both worlds white paper and Brexit referendum was announced on the same on the same day, day yes in February of 2016 mark that date in your history books yes so the the uh, the referendum was lost by Cameron and won by Brexit uh, and then we saw the shift uh, with Theresa May and also Boris Johnson to this 
uh, new uh, hashtag, hashtag Global Britain. Mm. And what was that about? Uh, well, we get a clue with Liz Truss, who is the current Trade Secretary. There she is bumping hands uh, with the uh, Singaporean uh, head of state there. Uh, and oh, this isn't TTIP, it's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. But Britain isn't on the Pacific. So the idea, if you remember, about these sort of globalist trade deals was that the TTIP was supposed to be uh, a deal between Europe, the UK and the United States. Yeah. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was the United States, China, Australia, New Zealand, these the countries around the North the Pacific, America, South America, uh, and, yeah, and Australia, the Pacific, the Pacific yeah. Rim. Um, but the problem was that Trump came along in 2016. And one of the first things he did was say, uh, TPP, we don't want that. This is uh, this is nonsense. This is a threat to our sovereignty. Mm. We're not having that. And no sooner had he made that statement than Britain jumped straight in there and said, well, no, we can't let it go because this is absolutely fundamental to, to the UK's uh, foreign policy and trade policy. These types of internationalist globalist trade deals, they jumped in and they completely reinvigorated the TPP to the point that it's effectively been signed, uh, sealed and delivered at this point. So uh, on top of that, then we have seen other uh, rhetoric uh, from the UK, uh, for example, in defence. Now, if we remember the framework for the EU negotiations, it's not just about trade by any means. It's also about a security partnership. It's about defence. Uh, and one of the things that David Ellis has been highlighting over the last uh, couple of weeks is this new uh, notion from the UK's Ministry of Defence of the integrated operating concept. Um, and that is basically about Britain positioning itself as the glue that binds together uh, international defense. So that's the UK, the EU, and uh, as Mike Pompeo announced a couple of weeks ago, now the United States, because the United States wants to come in uh, to European Defense Union. But so European Defense Union is no longer European Defense Union, it's just Defense Union. So Britain has now positioned itself mid-Atlantic between the EU and the US as the glue that binds these together on defence. And I believe that's where we're heading. And I said that in 2016, we're heading for uh, the UK positioning itself under this global Britain mantra as being the glue that binds together the US, the EU and the UK in what is going to look very like the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Mm -hmm. So for trade, so so basically, just just to sum up what you're saying, Mike, is that uh, Brexit comes along, uh, you know, TPP uh, not popular, TTIP not popular, Brexit comes along, it uh, offers Britain an opportunity to reconfigure uh, its position uh, in between these two powers, Europe and the U.S. and North America, and effectively we get TTIP and TPP by fiat, yes, by global administrative, let's say corporate fiat. Uh, so it really, uh, Brexit allowed for a runaround uh, in that sense. So, I mean, this, it, it, the irony here, Mike, is that the mantra of Brexit, how it was sold to Middle England, was that this was about, you know, our national sovereignty and our, you know, um, that impulse, that national impulse and, you know, the pride of Britain. But in effect, uh, that Britain could be, you know, selling its own sovereignty and the sovereignty of other countries down the river uh, through these uh, trade, uh, these corporate agreements, TTIP and TPP, where effectively you lose your national sovereignty if you are signed into this binding globalist framework. So I think that's an interesting twist on Brexit, isn't it? It is, it is. And of course, it, it, it doesn't mean that we will actually come out of the EU completely as a, as a sovereign independent state. We have brought all the EU legislation onto the UK statute books. We are currently aligned with the EU. Uh, and in some areas, we may find that uh, that extra flexibility of coming out of the EU treaties, the, the, the Treaty of Nice, the Treaty of Lisbon and so on, that we were part of and, and that we we're part of in the past gives us the ability to actually bring these other uh, countries in as a bridge. Uh, and uh, well, we'll see how that goes. But that's that's how I see it. So Britain's the hub of this new sort of re refit or facelift of, of the globalist uh, kind of framework yes. internationally. And so where does that leave, Mike, last thing? For the Green New Deal and the Great Reset, this also positions Britain in, Perfectly a, for in, that. in the fulcrum, yes. a fulcrum position yes. for that. So for that globalist agenda. And, th and that's what Boris Johnson has been aggressively pushing 
especially in the last uh, six months. Yes. Yes, indeed. So, uh, well, what's uh, what's Labour been up to with respect to Brexit then? Well, I just thought this was a, a, an apt comment here uh, by a left-wing uh, commentator uh, here. Uh, this, his name is, uh, yes, yeah, is David Osland. He's saying it turns out that Corbyn's position on Brexit, accepting the referendum result, but seeking a customs union and a single market access was the only realistic way forward. His gloating opponent's should pause for reflection. Uh, would you agree with that statement? I mean, it, it is a bit late, you know, to, it's kind of a looking back uh, yesterday's statement, really, but what do you think about that? Uh, I, th I think uh, we've got to wait and see what happens because, uh, look, Brexit was a fraud from the beginning in the sense that they split it into two, the divorce, that took us out of the, uh, the key treaties uh, but then we negotiate a future relationship. Well, they may not finish that negotiation by the uh, by the 31st of December, mm -hmm. but there is going to be a future relationship. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot of work and a lot of time to pass before we, uh, we see how that future relationship finally pans out. Um, we may not be full members of a customs union in the single market on day one, but that that is not a static position. And where does this leave the internal markets bill? Or where does this leave the Irish border? Uh, well, I, think, I mean, I think that is one of the areas where they already have agreement on the on the Northern Irish border issue. So, so, uh, uh, and I'm still fairly certain that by Sunday they'll probably have most of these other issues knocked off. Interesting. So, yes. Get interesting. Where does that take us? Well, let's see. Uh, where does that take us to the U.S. election? Uh, and so, looking at the U.S. election, a lot of people are asking. You know what's going on uh, with with the U.S. election, and uh, I might have. Uh, no, there we go. We say uh, what's going on with the U.S. election. Well, it's difficult to say uh, right now. There are legal challenges uh, in play, and the question is, uh, you know, is Biden going to be uh, chosen, inaugurated in in January? Uh, that's the big question. So it, it's probably it looks like a fait accompli. It's certainly from the press's point of view. Uh, certainly from the Democratic establishment's point of view, uh, the media, absolutely, it's, it's, it's over, basically. But and a number of states have certified their elections, all 50 states. You could say there's an announcement made in the last uh, couple of, of days. Uh, that will bring us also to the, uh, the, the interesting YouTube story uh, as well. But, so, but the legal challenges will continue. They will, they will continue regardless. Even if Biden becomes president, I think that you're going to see these court challenges, legal challenges will continue. There's going to be a big push for electoral reform in the United States. There has to be, in fact, because if, if not, really the Republicans are conceding all elections in the future uh, in perpetuity. If there's no election reform, if they don't get off the electronic voting system yeah. and they allow local partisan machines to control the counting process and, and things like this. So, but what's so Joe Biden? Uh, he's he's making announcements, Mike. He's making declarations. I don't know what to make of it, really. I mean, listen to it for yourself. Okay, and, let's let's have yeah. a listen to this. My first hundred days is going to require. I'm going to ask for a masking plan. Everyone for the first hundred days of my administration to wear a mask. It will start with my signing an order on day one to require masks where I can under the law, like federal buildings, interstate travel on planes, trains, and buses. I'll also be working with the governors and mayors to do the same in their states and their cities. We're going to require masks wherever possible. But this goes beyond government action. And so, as a new president, I'm going to speak directly to the American people. And say what I'm saying now. We need your help. Wear a mask for just 100 days. It's the easiest thing you can do to reduce COVID cases, hospitalizations, and death. Help yourself, your family, and your community. Whatever your politics or point of view, mask up for 100 days once we take office. 100 days to make a difference. It's not a political statement. It's a patriotic act. It won't be the end of our efforts, but it's a necessary and easy beginning, an easy start. Right, so that was a 
Breitbart put that clip yeah. together. But so he's saying wearing a mask is a patriotic act, and it's just this is the beginning. So apparently, the the, the government has done nothing. Uh, state governors have done nothing for the last uh, nine months that when Biden becomes president will be a new beginning and new measures will come in and the first act of patriotism is to wear a mask for 100 days. Now is the time, he says, 100 days. So it's a symbolic thing. So what they're what the Democrats are doing clearly is a strategy which will be, you know, if, if they can get people to buy into this 100 day uh, business and then they'll drop the statistics, they'll you know, start moving, change the reporting, and then declare a kind of COVID victory with vaccines and lower death counts. And then Biden will, will be credited in the history books of defeating the evil COVID uh, somehow uh, through his bold measures, his Churchillian, you know, uh, 100 days, wear a mask, do it for the, do it for, for uh, the, the country. So, uh, so, Anyway, the, we'll get to the problem with that in a second, but just to look at uh, in terms of uh, propaganda uh, here, uh, this is what, oh, sorry. Yeah, okay, was let's go back there. to that one. Well, you know, he's going to have a hard time getting a buy-in uh, on this because this, you know, you look at some of these polls, 70% 70, 70 of Republicans don't believe the election was free and fair. Uh, so, you know, this automatically you've got a problem here. If Biden tells the country to wear a mask for 100 days, you can absolutely guarantee that half the country will not wear it, potentially, out of basically protest. Because the, A, they don't see him as, a, as their legitimate president, too. And three, they think he's just barking senile orders at them. You know, the sort of COVID orders that have gone down like an anvil in so many states especially states that have a Republican majority. Um, Trump was suggesting uh, on Twitter, I think yesterday, that, that the United States is now as divided today as it was in 1860. Do you think that is a, a fair statement? Um, I don't think so. It, it is very divided, but in a different way. It's, it's, it's divided in a different way. Obviously, it was, there were more physical and uh, hard, hard realities uh, in, in back then. But, mm. but it is, he is right. Um, it is from rural to urban, uh, from from left uh, to right, from conservative to ultra liberal or socialist, radical, democratic socialist, it is very divided ideologically. Yeah, and the media, uh, the media machine is the X factor. They didn't have this kind of propaganda corporate media machine back in 1860 uh, that you have now. So this is really a kind of more of an information war. Whereas back in 1860, it was muskets. Yeah. And, uh, and and ships and cannons and well, things like that. Yes. So, so but uh, so this is where the the, the propaganda is going uh, on this. Um, so if we look at uh, the next next image here, uh, this is so this is what Time Magazine is putting up here. They've just announced Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are Time's 2020 Person of the Year. So apparently the, this is the Person of the Year. So this is like the split personality of the year. So they're really marketing. Uh, you can see Joe Biden's a secondary character in this uh, smaller image, kind of an old man off to the side, and Kamala Harris. So it's very likely, Mike, obviously this is signaling here uh, from the intelligence community because it's, well, we'll get to this in a second time. But, but why would time have Biden on a red background? That's Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure. Uh, associating him with Republicans yes. or the enemy or something. So so really, he he might not last Really, he might not last his 100 days, definitely not more than six months. It could be like a health episode, and I'm sure they would be more than happy to sacrifice him at the altar of COVID somehow, make him a medical martyr, and he has to step down or whatever. Uh, and then you get this unelected, unpopular, uh, divisive character, Kamala Harris, who has zero mandate. If Joe Biden has a very small mandate, Kamala Harris has very little. So, but that, that leaves us to the next... Uh, the next issue here, so this is the CIA uh, is long known, Time Magazine is, is, a, is a CIA uh, sort of cutout uh, organization. Uh, so that's well known throughout history. And so this is a letter here, I just wanted to point this out from the Washington Post in 1976. This is Donald M. Wilson, the VP of Corporate and Public Affairs, basically uh, trying to make a, an explanation in the press at the time that they weren't running fake stories about Allende, which uh, the, the Chilean president that they deposed overthrew in a violent coup um, in, back in, in the early 70s. So, I mean, there's a long history of the CIA running time as a kind of 
uh, it's a mouthpiece basically yeah. of the intelligence yeah. community. I mean, that's well documented throughout history. And there's other newspapers. The New York Times has kind of filled that. Uh, the New Washington Post has also been accused of being a mouthpiece for the deep state uh, in America. So, so they're they're really going all out in terms of this, you know, trying to legitimate legitimize Kamala Harris and, and and Joe Biden in the eyes of the public. Why would they work so hard as to give somebody an award uh, before they've even done anything? Uh, it does remind me of Barack Obama's Nobel Peace Prize, which he was he was given before the there wasn't even any dirt on the rug at, at, at Pennsylvania Avenue. I think it was just a few weeks after his inaugurated, he got bang, he got a Nobel Peace Prize. So it was kind of a preemptive, encouraging prize. So I mean, this is what the liberal establishment do. They they lop awards on people who are really struggling for public legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Andrew Cuomo in New York, he's getting loads of awards now uh, after the debacle and his healthcare massacre, uh, the, the, all the, the lockdowns are massive failures and so forth. He keeps getting awards every week now. And Bellingcat is another example. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of awards to sort of legitimize them. So in terms of like what's going on right now, there is this battle. This is a significant story in the United States. The Pentagon basically is withdrawing support for CIA counterterrorism missions. Now, some people might say this looks like an internal, possibly an internal battle. This might be uh, maybe a, a pro-Trump faction, uh, basically signaling to Gina Haspel, uh, the hawkish CIA uh, director there, that uh, you know you, we're not going to give you that sort of carte blanche support for all these anti-terror missions that you're running. Normally, the Pentagon provides logistical and even military support, air support, and so forth. And so they're not going to be getting that anymore. So really, so ISIS was, you know, Al-Qaeda ISIS was the main enemy. But now, no, they're saying, no, it's not. It's, it's we're focusing on Russia and, and China now. So we're withdrawing all these little sort of counterterrorism games, uh, you know, and giving the support now for this new bigger Cold War, bigger framework against Russia and, and, and sending, China. Sending ships down to the South China Sea and having them shot at at the moment and things like this. So yeah, more, more into Cold War footing, Mike, uh, really net right now. So that, that's what it looks like anyway. Of course, yeah. that could change in a couple of months. Um, okay, so uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Now, uh, not so good news today, Patrick. Uh, Simon Dolan uh, tweeted this out this morning, breaking, the Supreme Court have extraordinarily not allowed us to appeal. Uh, they don't believe the single biggest restrictions in English legal history are worthy of a hearing. A very dark day for justice. Currently exploring all options, we'll issue a full statement later today. So, of course, Simon Dolan bringing a case to challenge the lockdown. Uh, and, uh, well, he had a, a high court case on the 1st of December, uh, and that was uh, going to appeal to the Supreme Court um, but uh, they have rejected it. So here is the letter that they provided. Let's just zoom in on that. Uh, after consideration of the application filed on behalf of the appellant seeking permission to appeal the order made by the Court of Appeal on the 1st of December 2020 and the objections filed by the respondents, the court ordered that permission to appeal be refused because the application does not raise an arguable question of law. Uh, well, uh, yes. That's arguable. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, they're saying that the, the appellants pay the respondents' costs of the application where the respondents for apply for costs, the costs will, uh, to be awarded will be assessed. So he's potentially into court, court costs as well. Um, we will, of course, report on uh, in due course on uh, whatever final decision they make on that. Yeah, massive disappointment, obviously, from his legal team side. They've made an incredible case. They've done a great job. There's a tremendous amount of, Mike, a talented highly skilled researchers also that have informed uh, his, his, uh, his team as well. So, but really, the, uh, I listened to some of the, uh, the earlier uh, hearings, Mike, and really the, the judges just weren't having any of the arguments. Yes. And what's interesting, and I, I do encourage people to listen to these hearings, why should you listen? Because then you can see what the arguments are being made from, from the bench, what judges are saying. And their whole arguments are hinging around asymptomatic carriers. And, and so behind that, you have all sorts of things like waiting for the vaccine as well. I mean, that would come in the conversation after that. But it's really based on what a lot of people are calling now the myth, the myth of the asymptomatic super spreader. And so all of these lockdown restrictions and, and rules are really based on really what's crackpot pseudoscience mm -hmm. that has been taken as gospel 
in the media has been parroted by an unlimited amount of politicians, public health officials, uh, some sadly some academics that are you know hanging their scientific reputations on really what is this kind of myth, this guesswork, this kind of theory uh, that's never really been proven in practice. And now we're seeing a lot of proof to the contrary that yes, asymptomatic spreading is possible, but it's completely implausible. Uh, if you look at the actual numbers and at the actual science, yet we've based all of our all of our policies, mitigation policies, from masks, social distancing, lockdowns, and now you know whatever is coming else down the pipeline, all based on this idea of the asymptomatic super spreader. Uh, the uh, school closures as well. Yes. Now the other idea that, uh, of course, is is driving that is the idea that. Uh, we can't, we've got to keep the pressure off the National Health Service. Exactly. Right. And uh, so the Royal College of Surgeons yesterday published this, uh, more than 160,000 people waiting more than a year for hospital treatment. Uh, and what did they say? Today's waiting time statistics show there were more than 160,000 patients waiting for more than a year for planned hospital treatment in October 2020, the highest number since May 2008. Uh, and they went on to say, uh, that the total waiting list now stands at 4.45 million people, right? So this is a pretty uh, serious situation. And of course, lockdown is all about keeping pressure off the NHS. Well, the NHS has managed to systematically remove the pressure from itself by simply stopping treating anything which is not COVID related. And we're seeing uh, stories in the mainstream press uh, regularly about people that have died as a result of having their uh, cancer treatment uh, stopped and not being getting emergency treatment and so on. And, and that's also indirectly supported by Project Fear in the media, Project Fear by the government. They have also frightened a lot of people away from seeking uh, urgent care and care that they need. And it's become more difficult as well just to get basic access to your GP for that first step. Yes, and as we've been making the point over the last several weeks, if you look at the excess mortality, because there is some excess mortality, it's nowhere near uh, the levels that we saw in the spring. But if, if you look at the excess mortality that is going on at the moment uh, and look at where people died, uh, they were mainly, the main excess mortality is from people dying in their own homes. Yep. Uh, not in care homes, not in the NHS, but in their own homes. So they're not getting hospital treatment or they're not going to hospital for whatever reason. Um, so uh, this, is, uh, this is the... Uh, uh, from the Royal College of Surgeons, Professor Neil Mortensen, saying yet again, these waiting time figures drive home the devastating impact COVID has had on wider NHS services. No, I'm going to have to disagree with you, Professor Mortensen, because this is not about the impact of COVID. This is about the impact of policy, uh, and it's about the impact of government policy, but also NHS management policy. They have chosen to take this approach, uh, and we'll see that in one second in a graph. Uh, but then he went on to say waiting lists for plant treatment were already heaving when the virus first struck. Struck Now, of course, this applies to the economy as well. This is true uh, because we're seeing more and more retail companies going out of business in the economy. Uh, this isn't uh, only as a cause of lockdown. These were companies that were already on their last legs in many cases. And the lockdown was just the final, the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were. It's exactly the same in the NHS. The NHS was already under pressure, uh, but they have uh, chosen to take a particular direction with respect to how they're going to treat people. And as a result, they're making matters systematically worse. But if anybody has any doubt about what pressure the NHS is under at the moment, uh, let's look at this, because this is the latest figures from the uh, UK government uh, uh, coronavirus uh, website, patients admitted to hospital. And uh, Patrick, I have to say, <laughs> bearing in mind that in the spring at the peak in April, uh, the NHS was not overwhelmed. That's right. And we are at a fraction of the levels that we saw. And we are at normal winter levels at the moment, it seems to me, at a fraction of the levels that we saw in the spring. The NHS was not overwhelmed in the spring but it is overwhelmed now, there's something not right. And let me just give you, looking at this graph here, let me give you a snapshot, Mike, here. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you consider London, this is the biggest metropolitan center in, in, in the UK, one of the biggest in, in Europe and the world, actually. And so right now, uh, so there are 14,417 NH hospital beds for general and uh, ICU acute care in London, okay, in the region. 
between July and September, an average of 10,900 of them were occupied. That's only 77%. So where's the crisis? There isn't one. And we're, right now we're in the heat of a very cold winter and the NHS is not overwhelmed. They're still recycling this talking point though. They're really, they're falling back on the springtime talking points and the strap lines, which is that, uh, you know, this, we're, we're, there's a global spike. I keep hearing this, this is a one that's a good laugh. There's a global spike going on right now. Hospitals are being overwhelmed and you hear these anecdotal stories. My cousin's uh, stepmother's know somebody who works in the NHS, and they said it's like a war zone. You keep these anonymous messages are being dropped in comment threads on social media, and it's, uh, you know, there's not, the numbers just don't bear out. No, that's right. The that. numbers don't bear out. The statements are made by the politicians. The statements are made by the, uh, the sage so-called scientists. The statements are made by people that are claiming to be working within the NHS in some cases. On the other hand, we've got plenty of people that are... Uh, telling us who they are that are working within the NHS saying the opposite is true. But the, but the data never gives the, the, the truth to the statement that's made. The statement is made with no data. And when you go and look at the data, you find that it's a very different story. So that's what, propaganda by yeah. definition? Yes, by definition. So yes. who knows, how do you know what to believe, Mike? This is the question. How do you know what to believe? And on top of that, we have the theatrical performances, which we've highlighted on this program over the last week, Matt Hancock being a great uh, performer on this stage. And this brings us to this quote here, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players, says William Shakespeare. And there he is getting his inaugural uh, COVID mRNA jab there. That's William Shakespeare himself uh, playing that role on the stage. And so speaking of actors, uh, they bring in the clowns. Who have we got? Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock. Let's listen to what he has to say. On Tuesday in Milton Keynes, it was great to meet some of the patients and the staff involved. Uh, and I love what Barbara, who's 82, said when she got her jab there. She said, I'd much rather get the vaccine than COVID-19 itself. I'm with Barbara. It's free according to need, and it's the very best way to protect you and to protect those around you. And when enough people get vaccinated, and we see those hospitalisation numbers coming down, we can then start lifting the restrictions which have made this year so tough. So first, that, that's a great t-shirt concept. I'm with Barbara, how about that? Should, yeah. we, should we launch that? I think so. Bumper stickers, I'm with Barbara. So the first thing I'm gonna say about Matt Hancock, he's saying 82 year old Barbara who just got vaccinated. Listen, the average, the median, the median age, I think that's the correct statistical term, the median age of someone dying of COVID in this country is higher than the median age of, of death. Yeah. So what does that tell you? You're probably better off getting COVID. Uh, otherwise, you know, you'll die younger of natural causes, Mike. But he said, what, what's important is, is the quid pro quo. He says, if enough people get vaccinated and we see the, you know, the ICU, uh, the, the, the hospitalizations go down, uh, then we can all get back to uh, all the things we love, back to life as normal. Well, we just showed you that hospitalizations are not above five-year averages. They're, they're normal. So where's this crisis? Where's the pandemic? Uh, this is a very good question. Uh, and as for, as for whether the vaccine is actually going to do any good or not, let's, uh, let's have a look at this. Now, we showed uh, on, on Wednesday uh, the uh, Re Regulation 174 information for UK health care professionals, unbranded, nobody's name on it. Uh, it was apparently coming from the uh, Department for Health and Social Care, but we don't know that that's who wrote it. A lot of Americanizations in this document, and I'm going to suggest mm -hmm. that it was a, either a direct copy and paste job from Pfizer propaganda, or it was written by Pfizer themselves. But anyway, this is what it said. The safety of COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, uh, the Pfizer one, was evaluated in participants 16 years of age and older in two clinical studies conducted in the United States, Europe, Turkey, South Africa, and South America. Now, uh, a very key, this is a very key point. Why did it have to be uh, conducted across all those countries uh, and continents, in fact? Uh, and the reason is that to get the 40,000 people was a real struggle for them. And if you, if you remember a few months ago, the headlines in the mainstream press uh, that uh, for the Oxford vaccine, they were worried and complaining that they couldn't find enough people for the trials. 
uh, because there weren't enough people with uh, with coronavirus infections to take part. So anyway, this is uh, this is uh, perhaps why this uh, was so spread right around the world, uh, and they only managed to find forty thousand people to take part, uh, according to this document. Uh, and then, of course, uh, what this document also said was that out of these, at the time of analysis, uh, only 9,531 vaccinated people were actually being evaluated for safety two months after the second dose. OK, so that, that's very important as we as we go forward. Now, yesterday, the, Fed, uh, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, uh, published this document. Uh, this is Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting, December the 10th, 2020. Uh, and it's at least labelled as to who it's, uh, it should be attributed to, which is the FDA. And it's all about the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, but, and here's the thing that perhaps the UK document was less honest about. At the bottom, what does it say? Sponsor Pfizer and BioNTech, right? So what is this? Is this the, the FDA talking about a, uh, a vaccine or is this Pfizer and BioNTech talking about a, a vaccine? Uh, I think this is pretty key and I think that's why the British version of this document uh, was uh, unattributed. Yeah. Um, so the, re the regulator is basically being run by, by the corporations by the corporation. that they're supposed to be regulating. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so then uh, let's move on and have a look and see what this says. This is the key thing for me because they're already starting to cover their tracks. Uh, sponsors plans for continuing blinded placebo controlled follow-up. Now, uh, on one of our previous programs, we showed a, gra a graphic that the BBC had produced uh, showing the difference between uh, the current batch of COVID-19 vaccines and what traditionally happens. What traditionally happens, Patrick, as you know, is that it takes 10 years to get approval for a vaccine. And over those 10 years, they follow the people that are involved in the trials and they make sure that they come to no harm in that time. That's what is supposed to happen. In this case, we haven't done these 10-year uh, trials. We've done six months of trials. And, and my ad, preceded by a few years of animal trials. Preceded by. Right, yeah. right. So they don't go to the human trials straight away. That's right. But this is really important because what they're saying here is uh, that they will not be following the people that were in the control group, the placebo recipients, for any period of time. Because in six months' time, six months following dose two, if they've not already requested it, they're going to be given the vaccine. So what that means is that people that are in the control group, they can't be followed for 10 years to see how they do as compared to the people in the vaccinated group because they'll also be vaccinated. Mm. So this means that there is no follow-up over the next period of time, because one of the things that's very interesting that, that we need to find out is whether people ha suffer detrimental long-term effects as a result of having the vaccine compared to people that haven't. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe this doesn't matter because the intention is to vaccinate everybody anyway. Uh, but still, what this absolutely demonstrates is that Pfizer is uh, making sure that they are covering their tracks for the future and there can be no possibility of any suggestion uh, that any long-term health condition was related to the vaccine in any way because there'll be nobody to compare it against. They can just sh shrug their shoulders and, you know, do this with their hands and say, hey, we, we don't have a control group to compare with. Nope. We, we had to vaccinate them because there's a pandemic on. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's move on then. Uh, so here is uh, the next statement that we want to look at. In a mid-November analysis of 36,621 participants, uh, randomized one-to-one -to, -one to vaccine or placebo, efficacy in preventing confirmed COVID-19 occurring in the last seven days, uh, sorry, in the least, at least seven days after the second dose of vaccine was 95%, with eight COVID-19 cases in the vaccine group and 116 COVID-19 cases in the placebo group. So what are we talking about? We're talking about 18,310 people in each of those groups. Mm -hmm. And we had eight cases now, this is cases, not serious cases, or this is just cases. So how do we define a case here? In the case of this trial, it was one uh, positive PCR test and one symptom, okay? Uh, and that made you a case. And so, that's not a clinical diagnosis. No. no. That's not a proper clinical diagnosis. So eight, eight out of, uh, eight of 18,310 uh, on one side, 162 out of 18,000 
310 on the other side. So let's just put this in, in graphical form. So if we have a pie chart here, uh, there is the uh, total of people that were uh, taking part on the vaccinated side. Uh, and you can see the green line there, can't you? Uh, which shows those affected. No, you can't. I can't. It's no, microscopic. It's microscopic. Now, if we uh, move that on to people in the control group, then okay, you start to see a, a very, very small segment uh, in green, which is the people that are affected by COVID-19 in the control group. But really, is this the kind of is this showing a pandemic on screen at the moment? So they're, they're comparing essentially, Mike, what you're saying is they're comparing the width of two different razor blades. Yes. Basically. And, <laughs> so, and, and, they're, and they're rolling out a global vaccination campaign on the basis of this trial. They're saying 95% effective. Right, we'll come on to that in a on, second. Based on this. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at some of their statistics then. So for, uh, first severe COVID-19 occurrence after one dose. Now, uh, we'll come on to Matt Hancock in one second to explain this one, this dose one uh, business. But in terms of severe occurrences after the first dose, they had one severe occurrence in the vaccination group and they had nine severe occurrences in the after the first dose in the unvac in the placebo group. And that was in this in this case around twenty one thousand six hundred people in each of those groups. Um, so. Uh, in order, before we show you the next uh, statistic, let's just have a listen uh, to what Matt, uh, to what Matt Hancock had to say, uh, because uh, this is a very key point as we move through these. Uh... Is that my clip or yours? No, this is mine. Yeah. And even if you've had the jab, you're not immune because the vaccine will not fully protect you until seven days after you've received the second dose, and we don't yet know if it'll stop you from passing on the disease to other people. So we have to all keep acting as if we can still pass it on. And that is the safest way to get the number of cases down and keep people safe. Now this is really critical, Patrick, because if we go back to this graphic again, uh, that means that the, the numbers after dose one really aren't relevant because you're not protected in any way, according to Matt Hancock, until after seven days following the second dose. So the one and nine we can forget about. Uh, so let's uh, move on to this graphic, which shows severe cases. Uh, this is the first severe COVID-19 occurrence from seven days after dose two in participants without evidence of prior uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And in that case, seven days after dose two, when you're supposed to be protected by this vaccine, there were out of 18,198, there was one severe case on the vaccinated side and three severe cases on the unvaccinated side, on the placebo side. Okay, so just uh, to highlight that, uh, that's the vaccinated side, that's the placebo side. So if we put that into a graphic here, uh, well, we can see that there is effectively nobody affected uh, on the vaccinated side, but equally there is nobody affected in the control group. And again, where's the evidence of the pandemic? There is none. So let's remind ourselves what this said once again. Uh, it said in mid-November, analysis of 13,621, 36,621 participants randomized one-to-one, -one, uh, eight COVID-19 cases in the vaccine group, 116 COVID-19 cases in the placebo group, of which uh, you know one was serious in one group and three were serious in the other. So how are they getting this 95%? Uh, well, they're talking about relative risk and they're doing a calculation. Now, it doesn't matter if not everybody follows this calculation. We'll just run through it. Um, if you take the eight and divide it by the number of people in the vaccine group, you get that number 0 0.00044. If you take the 162 and divide that by the uh, number of people in the control group, which is the same, you get 0 0.00885. Uh, you divide those to get 0 0.0049. And then you do a quick calculation to turn that into percentage and you get 95%, <laughs> right? That's, that's called relative risk. It's the, it's the relative risk between the, the number of people who were infected on both sides of the trial. This tells us nothing about the efficacy of the vaccine and it tells us nothing about the actual risk uh, that we are experiencing, what we need to look like. So we're gonna put a big uh, X on that. It's statistical wizardry. It's statistical wi wi wizardry. What we need to do to get a better picture of this is to look at absolute risk reduction. What's the absolute risk reduction? And you use the same 
uh, figures, and it's, you start off with the same calculation, you end up with 0 0.0044, uh, 0 0.0085, uh, but you don't divide them at this point. You subtract one from the other, you get 0 0.00841 as the result. You turn that into percentage. This is the absolute risk reduction, 0.8%. There is only a 0.8% absolute less chance that you're going to uh, end up with uh, COVID if you're vaccinated as if you're unvaccinated, in which case, why are we rolling out a global vaccination campaign? It's a total corporate whitewash, and the politicians are basically sucking this up from AstraZeneca, from, from Pfizer, well, because... from Moderna, and, and regurgitating it to the public as if 95% uh, effective, trust us, this is what Pfizer told us, so just trust us. And then the people are repeating that out in the street. You hear people out in the street. I was I was in a black cab recently, in the black cab driver, we're talking about vaccines. He's saying, well, I, I like the Pfizer one. I prefer that. It's a bit more effective. It's 96%, I think. And the AstraZeneca, it's not as effective. It's about 94 So they've got the public basically comparing corporate brands on vaccines, uh, parroting these uh, completely whitewashed, bogus statistical claims that are being made by Matt Hancock. They're being made by other health ministers. And when you drill down to it, as you've shown, Mike, there's no provenance whatsoever None. in these claims. None. And so, so there's no evidence, no evidence of pressure on the NHS. We've shown that. There's no evidence that this vaccine is going to do anything. Uh, we've shown that. So, and over the months, we've shown that actually there's no evidence of a real pandemic there at all. It's a pseudo pandemic. So what is going on? And there's no evidence that lockdown uh, reduces the spread of the virus. That, that is true. And as Matt Hancock has, has acknowledged, there's no evidence that the vaccine is going to reduce the spread of the virus. Because if, and you're talking about asymptomatic spreaders earlier on. The myth. The myth the of. Myth of yeah. But are they using this vaccine creating those people? Because, because what the vaccine, yes. the vaccine actually doesn't produce immunity against anything. All it does is suppress the symptoms and therefore you potentially are spreading uh, a virus if you, there is a you're, virus. You're creating asymptomatic spreaders. Yes. And, and so this argument isn't being made by us. This was actually being floated out by a lot of people, including Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, who, who said this exact thing in a recent interview with Alec Baldwin on Instagram, okay, he said this. This is, this is a real risk. This is why it takes four to 10 years to develop a vaccine because it takes time to look at these things. You don't do what Matt Hancock is suggesting, which is to vaccinate everybody and then monitor to see what the effects are. We don't know yet if, it's going to be, if, you, if they're going to be able to spread it or not or whatever, making claims of immunity. He's made claims of immunity. Other government officials have said you get immunity from this vaccine. And they, they contradict themselves in the same sentence, saying that actually, no, you're not going to be immune. You can still spread it. I mean, what, what are these people talking about? They're just making it up as they go along. And I think the pharmaceutical companies are pretty much doing the same thing uh, because they've found a soft touch with all of these politicians who are desperate for a solution, desperate to defeat COVID and to take credit for it, whether it's Trump, Biden, High Hancock or Boris Johnson, everybody wants to, to have VE Day against COVID and then suck up all the glory for that, okay? So just, just to end off this with a bit of common sense, this is a Professor Dr. Sucharit Bhakti from the University of Mainz, an eminent researcher from Germany. In fact, one of the most cited in, in this microbiology field is, is Dr. Bhakti. Listen to what he has to say about vaccines. Would you take the vaccine? Of course not. I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm not mad. Now, look, if you are under 70, your chances of dying because of this vaccine are minuscule. Five out of 10,000 infected people under 70. Now, uh, in order for a vaccine to get licensed, um, I have to want to point it, to, to get approved, it has to be shown to be effective. How do you show a vaccine to be effective? You have to show that it saves lives. But if you're losing five out of 10,000 lives, 
How are you going to show that that number is going to be reduced by a vaccine? You can't. You will never reach statistical significance because if it goes down from five to three, it's not significant. All right, sorry. Uh, so forget it. Uh, why should I want to be vaccinated? Who was he speaking to? Uh, that was uh, Tr Trigonometry. This is a, a YouTube channel. Uh, great interview, by the way, and it's got massive traction. Uh, the interview they did with Dr. Bhakti. So we want to give a shout out to to those guys at Trigonometry. You can find that full interview on YouTube, and I, I encourage people to go uh, listen to it. Trigonometry is is the channel. Uh, but Mike, isn't uh, Dr. Bhakti really reiterating the point that you just made uh, regarding uh, what what are we talking about in terms of Efficacy, you know, what, what's the actual risk of COVID for starters? Why do you need to vaccinate every man, woman, and child on a planet for something that's not an epidemic? Well, as far as the data shows, and as far as even the pharmaceutical companies' own studies show. Yes, that's the point. <laughs> what, what's going on here? Yeah. This is just getting more bizarre by, by the minute. So, uh, speaking of bizarre, uh, this is what's happened uh, just last night uh, in Australia. Take a look at this aborted vaccine uh, project here in Australia. This is one of their big national pushes uh, here in by CSL. This is an Australian uh, firm there working with uh, the University of Queensland. And this is what they were saying. There is no possibility the vaccine causes infection and uh, routine follow-up tests uh, confirm that there is no HIV virus present. So basically, the, the test, Mike, uh, that they did, the, the trials they did, were throwing up HIV. Positive results. Positive results. And they're, they're panicking now saying, no, nobody, no, none of our trial participants have HIV. Uh, these are false positives. These are false positives. So they're, they're shutting down after phase one. They're, they're shutting it down, basically. And this, was this because one of the proteins that, that they were using in the vaccine was triggering the, the, HIV, HIV, sorry, the HIV, HIV test? It was, it was. So, so we'll, look at, uh, we'll look at this here, and this is, this is what they're explaining here. This is from CSL, uh, the, the uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, consortium itself. The phase one data show that the generation of antibodies directed towards Fragments of a protein, GP41, that's the key, uh, which is a component used to stabilize the vaccine. Trial participants were fully informed of the possibility of a partial immune response to this component, but it was unexpected that the levels induced would interfere with certain HIV tests. So what does that mean uh, in terms of the final uh, verdict here? They're saying it's generally agreed that a significant changes would need to be made to well-established HIV testing procedures in the healthcare system, they're talking about Australia, uh, to accommodate the rollout of this vaccine. So this is crazy uh, what's going on here. And so, so that's where we're at. And so what, what was the reaction here? Government cancels CSL order, orders AstraZeneca, uh, ups their order from 33.8 to 53.8 million doses, and ups their Novavax vaccine orders from 40 million to 51 million doses. So what have you got? Australia, the population of Australia is roughly what? Uh, 25 million yeah. around there? I'm not sure what the exact number is. And they've got already booked in 104 million doses. Yes. 105 million doses of COVID vaccines, Mike. So the question is, what on earth is really going on here? Um, this just seems like a total, I mean, just from an industry point of view, from this whole field of, of vaccine pharmacology. It's a total shambles. Uh, and, and, this, and so, you know, we have to look at the uh, purveyors of common sense, and sometimes you find them in unusual places on Twitter. This is a big, this is Big Chunky Charlie, who I'm now following on Twitter, because this is what Big Chunky said. He said, Go, this goes to show what a general mess virology is. They have no clue what they're doing, they're like the dark age alchemists, okay? I agree with Big Chunky Charlie. I'm with Big Chunky on this. Matt's with Barbara, I'm with Big Chunky. And this is what else he has to say, and this kind of hits the nail on the head. Of course, the virus is the new demon, the witch, utterly impossible to determine except by the ordained, their methods and machines. The average person has no recourse against it, and it is a heretic for attempting it. Some things never change, says Big Chunky Charlie. So. It is a total uh, black box, Mike. This whole industry is black box 
technology and through this we're, we're beginning to discover what you know how impossible the vaccine technology and pharm pharmaceutical industry is on this issue mm. i mean when you really when you really look at it you scrutinize it uh, when you ask for accountability from these firms have they even turned over the ingredients yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, we, they just we, have. For, for Pfizer, we know what the ingredients are, okay. yes, but, but, but only of course, just. who's qualified to actually, you know, the general public aren't qualified to, to, to know exactly what the implications of each one of those ingredients is. So it relies on, on uh, you know, doctors and, and people with experience of this type of thing to speak out. It used to be the regulator who did that, but, but years ago, the regulator turned around to the industry and said, you test your own products. Yes and report back to us whether they're effective or safe. We trust you, yeah. and we'll rubber stamp you with a license or whatever. So, I mean, that's <laughs> Of course, what, uh, the, the way that happened was uh, the industry got uh, suitable people on the boards of these uh, regulators. Yeah, and, and they, they amped up their lobbying operation, and not only that, how do you get immunity from prosecution? For COVID, they are immune from prosecution. Yes. How do they do that? It couldn't have been through lobbyists, could it? It couldn't have been through lucrative board positions for all of these uh, sage members and uh, various ministers. I'm sure there was, uh, you know, stock price is something to do with it as well, you know. So, yeah. but anyway, anyway, look, let's uh, let's just quickly finish off with this one, Patrick, uh, because you know the censorship agenda rolls on, uh, and this is YouTube. Uh, they pushed this out uh, a couple of days ago on the official blog supporting the 2020 U.S. election. Uh, and uh, what are they saying here? Let's have a look. Uh, yesterday uh, was the safe harbor deadline for the U.S. presidential election, and enough states have certified their, pres their election results to determine a president-elect. Given that, we will start removing any piece of content uploaded today, that was uh, yesterday, uh, or any time after, that misleads people by alleging that widespread fraud or errors changed the outcome of the 2020 U.S presidential election. So there again, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, uh, YouTube is making a definitive statement that anybody suggesting election fraud is misleading people. Uh, they know that. You may not know that. I don't know that, but they, they know that. They know, uh, yeah, they are the gods of, of election claims. Yes, uh, they go on. For example, we will remove videos claiming that a presidential candidate won the election due to widespread software glitches or counting errors. We will begin enforcing this policy today and will ramp up in the weeks to come. As always, news coverage and commentary on these issues can remain on our site if there's sufficient education, documentary, scientific or artistic context. In other words, if you're the BBC or CNN, we're not going to cause you any trouble. Uh, it's only the people that we, we deem to have insufficient education, insufficient documentary, scientific or artistic context that are going to be challenged by this. Um, so YouTube setting themselves up as the arbiters of truth once again. Uh, and I'm just going to make the point here to close. Um, some, thank you very much to the person who sent me this through. Uh, they were uh, watching some content on YouTube and this popped up. What did you think of this video? Help us improve YouTube. And it's the UK Column News from Friday, uh, from, from uh, uh, Wednesdays program uh, and they're asking for the for this individual and others I'm quite sure to rate our program because they want to improve YouTube by deciding whether certain content should be there or not uh, but Dolly says no Dolly says no so we're, we're encouraging people to give five stars right well if, if you, well <laughs> if you see the UK column you be honest be honest you know give it five stars you know don't hold back we know you don't want to hold back. Now, what I'm going to say is that YouTube is, is positioning itself to be the ministry of truth. So, you know, they, they themselves are saying, don't talk about election fraud because that's not right and uh, that's, that's disinformation. The fact that they're saying they're going to pull down content of people talking about uh, real legal cases that are in the courts right now in a number of states uh, to do with mail-in, Mail-in ballot fraud, um, illegal voting, post office, but fake post office boxes, and so forth. You know, unregistered voters, uh, problems with electronic voting machines, Dominion, and so forth. Um, saying that you're going to take that down, that itself is election meddling. Mm. So they're guilty of the very thing that they're claiming to want to be shutting down here. I mean, this is like Soviet era, prov. I mean, this is worse. <laughs> this is like. This is completely Orwellian. 
So who gives them the license to be the ministry of truth? And so this is just a, a dangerous place to be. And I'm going to say, where was YouTube and Google? Where were the fact checkers? Where was these uh, declarations of editorial control over your platforms when people were pushing out the absolute fantasy, fiction of Russiagate, that the Russians installed Donald Trump in the White House in 2016. We heard no end to this on every major mainstream media platform with, with reach that is much broader in terms of billions of media impressions compared to independent uh, YouTubers and, and you know, effectively marginalized outlets that are trying to report on all of these legal cases uh, that are being made by uh, the Trump administration, by the Trump legal team. Whether they're successful or not is a moot point. Whether they're real or true or not is a moot point. They're going through legal due process. So what, what Google and, and YouTube are effectively saying is, we don't want to hear about due process. We want to expunge any conversation about legal due process because we say that we know what happened. Mm. And we say from our partisan position, and they're clearly backing the Democratic Party, and they're really in, in, in the tank for Biden and were from, from before. Uh, so, I mean, this is completely partisan, completely out of whack. And I don't know what they're, how they can sort of justify this at all. I mean, uh, this is, this is high, a high level of corruption. At, at, these are monopolies that control a, a, a tremendous amount of information that people see and read. And they themselves, it's been proven through Google Analytics, that they can swing a certain percentage of the election vote, depending on how they game searches on Google, mm -hmm. as an example, or Google sending out voter reminders that are targeted to specific demographic groups, that can be proven uh, to have an effect on the result. Mm -hmm. That's real meddling. That's real interference. That's what they accused the Russians of doing in 2016, and they never produced a shred of evidence uh, to back up those claims. And yet here they are, here they are actually meddling I mean, th this is a dangerous precedent. Could they weaponize this type of attack, Mike, on, on elections? Could they do it in Britain? Could they do it in the EU? Could work? I think they've already weaponized it uh, on everything, not just elections. I think, I think that is the case. Politics and that's, and that's where we are. All sorts of discussions, yes. yeah. Yes. So, I mean, decide what you, how you want to push back against this, but... Uh, it, it needs to be pushed back against, for sure, yes. It does. Okay, well, look, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining us, Patrick, today. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll be back at uh, the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday, uh, and we hope to see you then. Bye-bye.